Morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. What a busy week we've had. Um, weddings, um, funeral, ladies' tea, Mother's Day. It's just a wonderful time. Uh, life is full. Be praying for one another. So many traveling today. So many seeing their mothers in other places. And a few guests today. Thanks for coming with us. If you're here visiting your mom and you came to worship with us this morning, then we're glad to see you this morning. Well, a couple of years ago, I joined the club. Let's see who else is in the club way ahead of me. Doug and Carol in the club way ahead of me. Jenna in the club way ahead of me. We're all sitting home. We're bored. COVID put us all in our seats. I looked outside in the home I'd lived in only for a couple of years, and I remembered, well, the people who lived here before me gardened. They had this big area, rock beds in between, raised beds, beautiful. Three years, I never touched it. COVID kind of bored us all up, so I needed something to do. Boy, gardening is kind of fun. It's a fun idea. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Weeding, planting, soil management, watering, fertilizing. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. You know, do you know something about gardening? You can spend more money gardening than you get in crop. Maybe some of you figured some of this out way better than me, but uh, by way of introduction, obviously we're talking about God's field, God's garden here. Um, this is the thoughts that came to me just in my own life. Last year, I tried to cheat the system. We're told you don't plant before Mother's Day. So today's the day, right, Jenna? But last year, right before uh, we headed off to our big family vacation in Florida, the forecast looked good. I was home alone. Lori and the kids had left a few days early. I was flying in. I planted corn, potatoes, tomatoes. I, I mean, I did. I, I worked like a dog. And then I'm in Florida on the beach looking at my iPhone and looking at the temperature changes every day and going, oh, man, man. I come home to death and destruction. <laughs> wasted money, wasted time. But... I got to tell you, the tomatoes that come out of your garden taste way better than that rubber styrofoam they serve you at Kroger. No offense, Carl. You know, um, you know Carl works at Kroger. It's so good. The fruit that we receive from the labor that we do. And, and I think it tastes better for two reasons. One, it tastes better. But two, there's just something about when someone comes over, I had friends come over first year I gardened and I made spaghetti sauce out of my garden, my tomatoes, my basil, my oregano, my thyme, and my thyme. And um, it was just fun. There's something in that. Well, that's the thing we're going to talk about today. Do you know God has a garden? The word was field. It's a cultivated field. It has the, very much the idea of garden, and we'll talk about that. As we proceed, well, how does this section fit into our whole series on 1 Corinthians? Paul has shown the Corinthians that they are spiritual. They, will, they are considered spiritual, not fleshly. If they love God, this reveals they have the Spirit of God. You remember last week, Pastor Brian teaching us that they were still babies, a very um, 
uh, in-your-face kind of section where he confronts them for their spiritual immaturity. He reveals it to them because of their jealousy and strife. There's contentiousness in the body. Today, this section reveals for us through the example of the church leaders, Paul and Apollos, in verses 5 through 9. This is the example set for us today. Here, there is no jealousy. They are God's fellow workers. Yes, they have different jobs under God, as God assigned. Looking ahead, this is the first of three pictures. God's field, or garden. God's building, we will look at next week. A beautiful image. And then God's temple. Do you not know you are the temple of God? With this in mind, this beautiful Old Testament language, we begin to understand that God is still pursuing the rescue of his people lost in Eden, and we are God's garden temple. Isn't it beautiful? This idea that God is rebuilding the place where he will dwell with his people. God has been dissatisfied since the fall in Eden and has pictured his redemption for us as a building in a garden with his presence with us together. This is all very common Old Testament language, but that's better left for two sermons from now. So I'll leave that alone. You're probably familiar with the first garden, Eden. But beyond that, listen to a few Old Testament passages where God likens his people and work here on earth to his own garden. Jeremiah 24, verse 6, God says, I will set my eyes on them for good. I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them. I will not pluck them up. Or Ezekiel 36, God says, behold, I am for you. I will turn to you. You will be tilled and sown. And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. So these passages set our minds, set the stage a little bit about that. But to be more specific, the passage in the Old Testament that Paul probably had in the back of his mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians 5, 3, 3, 5 through 9, was Isaiah 5. You might remember this passage. I had the responsibility of preaching it several years ago. God's garden. He wanted, he tilled the garden. He wanted good grapes. He got stinky fruit, as he calls it. He got wild grapes. Let me sing a song for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So you see, this would have been a very familiar concept for the church. It's not really a foreign image to us either. When we talk about our spiritual growth, we use words like spiritual growth, (laughs) an agricultural image, human flourishing. We would love to see that. You reap what you sow. We do this. When I was a young, uh, in my youth group, uh, my youth pastor would say, the proof of the root is in the Fruit. Yeah, see, we we use these kinds of expressions that describe our Christian lives as an organic experience that is growing. Let's pick up Paul's imagery and see what we can learn this morning from our text. If you're a note taker, here is the outline. One vivid metaphor, two human servants, three individual assignments, four works of God, and five lessons for us today. Now, I'm sure that 
Greg Maddock is sitting there going, that's 15 points. You know, I can't, you can't fool him over there. Uh, but really, it's really intended just to be a vehicle to talk about one thing. Okay, so we're going to pick at it a little bit. One vivid metaphor. You see it? One picturesque image. God's garden. So we'll start with that at the highest level. As I said before, God is declared to us in the Bible to have a garden. Listen to Psalm 65, how big God's garden is. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Apparently, God's a much better gardener than me. Now, if you think about this, I was going to put a slide up here to just kind of show you the metaphor in one fell swoop, but it was a little busy, and I thought you note-takers would, your brains would blow up trying to write all this down, when my goal was, just to help you understand, it's just one big image, okay? So we talk about it. We have the image of the field. That's the Corinthian church. This is God's field. The farmer assigned a servant to plant seed. That was Paul, the apostle. God assigned him to found, to begin, to originate the Corinthian church. The farmer assigned another servant to water the crop. God later assigned a man named Apollos to teach the Corinthian church. Number four, only God, only God can make a field produce a crop. What does that mean today? Only God can make the church grow. One vivid metaphor. Just three more. Number five, the servant who plants, the servant who waters, they work together with the same purpose, to accomplish what the farmer wants by helping his field produce an abundant harvest. Today, God's servants work together with the same purpose, to accomplish what God wants by helping the church grow. You feeling the metaphor? Are you feeling the imagery here? Just one tapestry. Two more thoughts. The farmer will reward each servant for their own hard work in the field. God will reward each servant for his own hard work in the church. And lastly, both the servant and the field belong to, to God. That's right. So both the church teachers and the church itself belong to God. Kind of an overview. Just one broad tapestry. Sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees, and I didn't want that to happen this morning. I just understand the imagery. With all that introduction, hopefully we can benefit from kind of getting a little bit more granular. And let's consider the image part by part now. So our second thought here is two human servants. If you want a description on that, and you like alliteration, you could say two humble human servants servants. Chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writing of himself, what then is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed, 
as the Lord has assigned to each one. Now this stands in contrast to the clickiness of the way that other people were trying to view them. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. Paul says, what is Apollos? (laughs) Who's Paul? They're just servants. Two humble human servants. Paul's language stands in contrast to the way that others thought about him. Paul and Apollos are merely Jesus' servants to whom he has assigned tasks. They were the human instruments through whom God gave the gospel so that the Corinthians could come to believe it. How foolish for the Corinthians to rank God's servants according to what role God gave them or to have some allegiance to one over another when they're simply servants in the field. Earlier there was this rebuke in verses 1 through 4 and Paul now ties this together and says church teachers are merely God's servants. Paulus and Paul are just God's servants. They were the human instruments through the Corinthians came to believe. You see in verse 6 that the servant who plants and the servant who waters are not that important. They're just farmhands. Only one person actually causes the seed to grow. And that's God. And in verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. The servant who planted the seed and the servant who waters it are working together on the same team with the same goal. They're not competing. So by employing this gardening image, Paul reminds them that he had planted the seed by bringing the gospel to Corinth. Paul was there first. There's a chronology here. Evidently, sometime later, Apollos watered the seed that Paul had planted. So Apollos taught the Corinthians after Paul did. Paul's indifferent. Neither Paul nor Apollos was more important to the church at Corinth. Think about it. Without a sower, there would have been nothing to water, yes? Without someone to tend the growing seed, you might as well not have planted it. Paul designated God's role in the process. They serve the Lord. God provides the increase. The blessings of salvation on the church at Corinth came through the power and will of God. Because of that, the Corinthians should not have attached some type of divisiveness to men who were merely God's servants. The good they received through Paul and Apollos should have made them loyal to God, not his servants. Two human servants. Three individual assignments. What are those? Well, the text tells us, Paul planted. Number one, Apollos watered. Number two. And as kind of a summary statement at the end of verse 8, Paul said that everyone will receive their wages according to their labor. So there's three different thoughts there. Sometimes you can press an image too far. I began to think a little bit about this, and I, I was thinking, I just, Paul trying to make the point about planting and watering and laboring, and is that the point that they're different? The, chronolo- the chronology? No, I don't think so. Friends, every bit of this would have to be word, like Bible and prayer ministry. 
It would all have to be Bible and prayer ministry. Perhaps planting has a little bit of a, of a maybe slightly unimportant significance, not really huge significance in the fact that you're describing the initial encounter with someone. If someone has never heard the gospel before and you share the word with them, then of course maybe you are the one who planted the seed. Oftentimes in your sharing with people, you're unaware of whether they've heard a message before at some point in their life. So I don't think the emphasis is so much on the difference between the watering and the planting and the laboring, which I actually think is kind of a summary word for all word and prayer ministry in the body. But there are individual assignments. There is some distinctiveness there in Paul's image. Not so much the tasks themselves, but the fact that Paul had one task and Apollos had another. And at some point, in a general sense, we will all receive the rewards and wages from the Lord for our labor. How important is planting and watering and laboring for the gospel? And you notice something here? It's very similar to John 15. We are not told to produce fruit. God does that. We're told to be faithful. Why would that be? Well, that's because there is the true gardener who created a world. And if I could use some agricultural, some gardening imagery here, he meant for it to thrive. But the garden fell into disrepair. But the gardener did not abandon it. He incarnated himself in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He sent the vine, as Jesus called himself, into the world to take the fall for all of our sin, to die on a cross, to create a new creation where humanity could live. He seals it through the defeat of his death and resurrection. And he has created a new people for himself who he calls to be his, get this, (laughs) co-gardeners. And he has promised in the end we will experience eternal growth and flourishing as we live in a renewed, reconciled garden city. The new heavens and the new earth. When we see the extent to which this gardener has gone to assure us that his promises are yes and amen, we can do nothing other than entrust him with our growth. The pressure is taken off of us to produce the growth. Growth is given by God as we sink deeper and deeper into the meaty realities of the gospel. As we move from milk to meat in word ministry. Four works of God. God assigns the tasks. Do you see that? Three, five, servants whom you believed as God assigned to each one. Sounds reminds me of Ephesians 2.10 that there are good works. Do you know that verse? For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one for boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Have you considered that? That as a worker in the field, God has... Jobs for you? Tasks that he has assigned you? God rewards each servant according to how faithfully he completes his assigned work. 
True growth is always God-given. And to be fair, Paul doesn't dismiss the importance of the ministry he and Apollos has done. Even though it's God who does it, he says, I planted, Apollos watered. But he points to the very source of the growth that the Corinthians have been looking for. God gives the growth. It's kind of like this. When Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you should have been focused on the one who gives the growth, but because you were hung up on the delivery method, you're still drinking milk. And if you're starving for a drink of water, you shouldn't get hung up on the container that it's brought to you with. A man in the desert is not concerned about whether he's drinking from a glass or a bottle or out of a puddle in the sand. He just wants the water. We have these assigned tasks The Corinthians had seized on the servants of God and had missed the point. We must not fail to do the work that God has given us. But maybe the most important point in this whole passage comes now. It's the most beautiful thing that washed me in my study. That God does not only assign the tasks, but God prospers the fruit god gives the increase jonah said it this way salvation belongs to the lord the gospel teaches me that i was spiritual dust dead in my trespasses and sin but god in his kindness brought a paul to plant the seed of the gospel in the soil of my heart. He brought an Apollos to water. And I thank God for those people in my life. They were faithful workers. But that's all they could do. They went home. Like every farmer. They went to sleep. It was out of their hands. These faithful servants couldn't cause the shell of the seed to burst open. God did it. They couldn't cause roots to wrap around my heart and squeeze it to life. God did it. They couldn't open my eyes to see my sin and my Savior. God did it. They couldn't arouse my faith to cling to Jesus. God did it. They couldn't make the seed of the gospel bear love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. God did it. My heart became a garden of hope only and exclusively because God did it. Did he do it through human actions and activities? Of course. Through the sweat of his servants? Yes. Through the prayers of parents? Of course. Through the preaching of pastors? I hope so. Through the courage of Christian co-workers and friends? Yes, but in the end, God did it. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And God doesn't just do it so we'll be a beautiful field of grace, but He does it so we'll join the ranks of Apollos and Paul. We will pick up a plow and get in the field, pick up a hammer and get to work on God's building. God gives the increase. Third, God pays the wages. To carry the analogy just a little bit further in verse, um, I think it's eight, who plants and who waters are one, they will each receive his wages according to his labor. Paul argues that the planter and the one watering just have the one purpose. 
They want to see the church grow and bear fruit. And their tasks were never at odds. They were in the same field. Nor were Paul and Apollos themselves. Listen, friends, they would never have argued over the credit or what they were getting. For the work done in Corinth, they were both expecting to be rewarded according to their own labor. They were unified. They did not oppose one another. It was up to the Lord to bring rewards. They all serve the same Lord. In fact, it seems that the Corinthian divisions had been based on perceived conflicts between the leaders. But Paul declares here, there's no conflict, so there's no good reason for divisiveness. They were not looking to others for validation and credit. They knew God paid the wages. And lastly, God oversees the workers. Verse 9, you are God's fellow workers. To drive his point home, Paul states that he and Apollos were God's fellow workers. Now, just to make sure we understand this, this is not, and in fact, the King James language is a little wordy if you have it there, but it gives the idea we are God's co-workers. And that's not the language in the sense that we're to get from this. In the same way we are God's field, and we are God's building, it's the exact same language, we are God's co-workers. You get that? I'm not a co-worker with God like, hey, dude, um, (laughs) we're on the same level. Me and you are co-workers, and we belong to God. Do you feel a sense there? That is what the text says. We form a team working together in God's service, each one needing the other to fulfill the goal. And the goal is God's intent, not ours. The Corinthian church is God's field, not theirs, not ours. God was the church's leader. The church's allegiance belongs to God and God alone. Paul closes this verse by calling the Corinthians God's building as well, speaking of the church as God's possession under God's leadership, And all these pictures show the fact that God is building a unified church. One building, one field, not a fragmented, divided church. But by quarreling and dividing, the Corinthians struggled to destroy what God himself was building. Shame on them. Since church teachers are field workers also, then the rest of the church is God's field. Church here refers to people, not a place. Children's song. You can't go to church, as some people say, the common terminology we use every day. You can go to a building. That is something you can do, but you can't go to church because the church is you. It refers to people individually. No, corporately, yes. In this text, dividing over church teachers is not how people with the Spirit behave. When people without the Spirit work together in various organizations, government leaders, employees of organizations, teachers at school, it doesn't surprise me that there is jealousy and strife among them, but groups of unbelievers typically have their own way of playing politics, right? That should not be the case for the church, for people with the Spirit. I was trying to rush because I have five lessons for today. One vivid metaphor. See, we're doing pretty good, right, Greg? One vivid metaphor, two human servants, three individual assignments, four works of God. What could we learn from that? I know I've sprinkled some of that in here, but let me leave you with five thoughts. I've tried to seed them already, so these will not be all new. They should really flow.
Number one, God has assigned tasks for you. What a privilege to be a worker in God's garden. Planters and waterers, we are servants with a mission. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. God has prepared good works in advance that you should walk in them. The book of Titus speaks of God's people as being zealous for good works. Servanthood is something that is a foundational truth of the gospel. Jesus is the leader. He is the chief servant. Since Christ was a servant, his people should be servants. And this servanthood is tied up with God's calling, just like it was for Christ. Pastor Brian spoke last week about Philippians 2 and the submissive humility of Jesus to serve. This will take on different practical forms for different Christians for their calling, for the tasks that God gives them. This is the way servanthood works its way out. But division should not happen among Christians or putting one person on a pedestal above another. There is a unifying mission that constantly provides the context for each person's obedience and service according to their calling. The mission is the building up of God's people. The, Corinthian, the letter to the Corinthians will unpack this. The gifts that God has given them are the reason to be used in the body. Each member, every member, has significance in the church and in God's work, in God's field. God has a task for you. He wants you to be a co-worker. Good for you to think about that. Number two. In order to produce fruit, because we want to have increase, right? What is the point of this without fruit? Stay connected to the vine. There's a great need for spiritual growth. You should be seeking to grow. How does that happen? Through word ministry, through watering and planting and laboring, through the word and prayer. In fact, I said this before. In John chapter 15, we're never told to produce fruit. We're told to bear it. The text says, as branches, if we were to be cut off from the vine, we can do nothing. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you Abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and these branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Fundamentally, I cannot grow spiritually by stopping lying and bridling my temper. (laughs) I just become a Pharisee. What is the command? Abide in me. Is there a place for trying to, you know, as far as we, is there human effort? Of course, from our perspective. But our job is not produce fruit. Our job is stay connected to Jesus. 
How do you do that? Through word and prayer. Abide in Jesus, not in his servants, not in yourself, not in self-help. Abide in Jesus. Stay connected. Number three, by giving and receiving the word as much as possible. I'm sorry, be giving and receiving the word as much as possible in your lives and relationships. Be sharing and receiving the word of God as much as possible, as much as you can in your relationships. Throughout Scripture, it's seen that the true believer and the godly church will be committed to continually feeding on the Word of God. In the church, it means being committed to learning more of God, more of His work in Christ, more of His Word in the Scripture. It is only through this commitment that ultimately divisions will be prevented and disciples will grow together in humility before God and His Word. It is in this commitment to seeking after solid food that people will figure out how to bring glory to God in every area of their lives. As our church is committed to solid food, we will have a greater appreciation for the whole work of God, the kingdom of God, the field of God that does exist here at Heather Hills and then exists throughout the world. We should be at the forefront of asking for good teaching that's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ crucified and that alone, which will lead to our own spiritual growth. It is this that will result in a church focused on Christ that will have real influence in the world and will change us. Number four, trust in God, not yourself, and not in others for the blessing of fruitfulness. The presence of spiritual fruit in your life and the lives of others is from God. Not the workers. Not you. Stay in your lane. When things are going poorly, it might not be your fault. When things are going well, I assure you, it's not because of you. That was oversimplified. Do you understand that? That was a little broad. But my point is simply, who is producing the fruit? God. Praise God. Trust God. Look to God. Spiritual growth is from God. In fact, one of the most beautiful things in the text that I haven't shared with you yet is this, that all of the verbs regarding the humans are in the past tense, and in the original language, the language is like a a, a finite action. I planted. Like over and done. I did that. I watered. Over and done, I did that. We labor. Over and done, I did that. All of the works regarding God, whether they're, the Greek is a funny language, whether they're past tense or present tense, carry the force of ongoing action. God gave and kept giving the increase. God gives the increase. God God has this ongoing thing. We just do stuff. (laughs) And God, can you feel that? And God is doing and doing and doing. It's so beautiful. And as, it's 100% through the whole text. All the human efforts, like blips and all of God, none stop. We would not be surprised, right? The Lord does not sleep or slumber. I suppose it's natural that personalities of some teachers or friends will seem more appealing. Some people will strike us as better communicators. As a church here, we think of it this way. It would be silly for us to exalt one teacher over another. Church teachers are just God's servants, that's all. Thank God for us, for you. They're all God's gift to us, teachers outside of our church. What makes it important is that God has given them. 
and God is the one who makes the church grow. Rather than fixating on one teacher and saying, I like, I hesitate to even use a name, and I don't mean the three of us like, oh, I follow Brian. No, no, I like Trey. (laughs) Never heard a bit of that here. I haven't. But I have heard about, well, so-and-so says, as though you're a disciple of so-and-so, and let's just be careful about that. Healthy churches have many church teachers, and church members should benefit from all of them rather than separating into groups that prefer one over another because it takes away from God. And then lastly, let's just talk about motivation for a minute. Why do you do what you do? Who are you working for? Who are you seeking to please? Friends, this is God's field. We, we, I don't mean the building. We are God's garden. We are God's building. We are God's temple. God designed it. God rules it. He will return. He pays the wages. We work under him together. I want to hear, I don't know about you, it's nice when my wife says good job or when somebody down here says, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. Well done, good and faithful servant from the Lord is the the purest of when nobody else notices what you're doing. Are you okay knowing that God notices, that God knows? Because we all fall into that trap sometimes. Why can't I just get a little appreciation? I don't think that's wrong. I think we're wired that way. We just look in the wrong places. We have got to train ourselves to seek the approval of God, not of people. And when we get the approval of people, we had better connect that so that we don't become idolatrous. We had better connect that and quickly say, that is a little taste of the good one that's coming, should I remain faithful. Not let that be an idolatrous thing all by itself. I'm going to invite the praise team back to the platform. Uh, We'll finish up here. We have a final song before uh, we're done. I know from our standpoint, it's kind of uh, challenging sometimes to figure out this, like, but I'm working really hard. God's supposed to do that. You've confused me, Trey. Well, let's think about your own life just for a minute. Your own Christian experience full of failures and successes, I'm going to hope. Full of failures, I hope, because you're human and full of successes because God is doing stuff in you. Who's responsible for your Christian life? Is it you or God? You see, if you say it's God, then I say, really? You want to blame God for your mess? And if you say me, then you sound arrogant because you're leaving God out, right? Don't get hung up on that too deeply. It's an image from the scripture. Both things are true. Does God use human means? Yes. But in our understanding, do we know that what good comes in us comes from God? Yes. How do you reconcile that? Work as hard as you can from your perspective and then turn and say thank you to God and give him all the glory and honor. Don't receive any of it for yourself. Turn and reflect it and be a good image bearer of the Lord. Well, the last image I could think of It's so beautiful that he describes this perfectly. It's the first psalm. And I'll be done.
Happy is the man who does not walk after the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor seat, sit in the seat of the scoffer. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, may your word go deep into our hearts. What a, I pray this often, and today it seems so right. Into the soil of our hearts like a seed and grow and produce an abundant harvest of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.